Welcome to The Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to The Corner. Welcome to another episode of Le Corner. Today, we have been pleased to discuss with Clint, director of Bullpen Media. It was an insightful episode, allowing us to explore a sports market we didn't talk about yet, the Australian market. In this interview, we first went through Clint's entire journey in the sports industry, from his involvement in life reduction to the creation of Bullpen Media. Then we had the opportunity to dive into the Australian sports tech market. Lots of great learnings. Hope you like it. Hello, everyone. Welcome for a new episode today of Le Corner International. Uh, today, we have the pleasure of receiving Clint. Hi, Clint. It's a pleasure being here. Hi. How are you going? Pretty good. Pretty good. Back at it for a new year. Tons of excitement, new objectives for the upcoming year. So I guess you have to have that kind of mindset um, in January. It's the usual end of December, start of January. You've got your reflections. Then you look at you look ahead, you know, goals, thesis, what you want to discover, and the usual resolutions, you know, to exercise a bit more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, great. Well, so, so for, for the audience that doesn't know you, Clint, can you give us a quick background on yourself and your career so far? Um, you were originally a, a producer at Sports Brand Media. Now you have your own gig with Bullpen Media. Tell us a little bit more about your, your, your activities. No problem at all. Thank you. So I started in 2009 working as a producer doing broadcast production, live production, live and all of live production in sport, football, a lot of all in sport. I'd moved into... As an Australian, what do you mean by football? Australian I, football, American football, regular football? Regular football. <laughs> <laughs> It's So I was... So I'd spent... A, So I worked in production for a few years, producing magazine shows, doing live productions, uh, not just in football. I did some tennis and various other sports and assignments, you know, going off on production assignments, either overseas or working on magazine programs uh, within Australia. Uh, I'd, so that's production work and that's weekly broadcast production. And I have done that for, did that for about three to four years and then I started getting interested in the sports business side. Once you start to work with athletes, you start getting interested in other mechanics. So the sports business side, which led me to editing a sports business daily out of Australia, which I'd, I had done for about three to four years as well. And that then led me to Bullpen Media, founding Bullpen Media in the, in the mid to late 2017. But then by the time I got to 2018, it started to really actually find its own and bullpen media is more about sports technology sports startups fitness gaming all these kinds of things that it began to coalesce from going from athlete to business to technology to startups so if you look at the career arc from there there's always been this shifting and changing look at the sporting industry 
Super interesting. And so, so to simplify it, maybe for, for, for our listeners, so Bullpen Media, you do podcasts, right? You work with startups. Do you still do work in the, in the content creation at some occasions? What's, what's the full range of activities that you cover? Content creation, definitely. And that, that's going to be ramping up into 2022. Podcasts, definitely. Uh, I do PR and communications for various uh, startups and startup clients. Uh, then I've now moved into uh, startup advisory work and starting to move into branch into other areas as my skill sets keep changing and developing and growing. It's But it all started with content creation and podcasting allowed me to move into other things because you start listening to people, learning from them, listening to problems, which allowed me to move into other spaces. Great. And so who, who are your typical clients in the advisory space? You mentioned startups, but you work also with big organizations, whether they be leagues, clubs, media, or it's very specific to, to, uh, to startups? For a long time, it is startups, but I've, but over the last, oh, it's a very, very recent shift that I've actually been, um, uh, I've been able to work with a, a, a sporting body in terms for a, for a particular project. I can't name it just yet, but It's, let's just say 99%, it's always startup work. Mm, and maybe and there, are, there have been some other bigger companies, actually. I shouldn't say 99%. It's mostly startup, but I've worked with some bigger companies in the past in terms of um, communications advisory, PR advisory, um, those kinds of um, contractual jobs. So, yeah. But I've, I've been very startup focused, though. Yeah, and it's and it's for the specifically for the Australian territory, right, for that, for that region of the world, or is it for do you have those organizations worldwide? It's been Australian-based. Um, it's been Australian-based, and that's a learning process to become a bit more globally focused from here on to go to to work with to work with Australian businesses and take them on a bit of a global journey or global communications or global PR. But at the moment, it's very Australia-focused. Terrific. Um, and so along that journey, what, one of the things you've done is be a mentor at, at several occasions. So whether it be for the startup bootcamp or for the, for Qatar sport tech, yes. um, can you tell us a bit more about this? What, what you liked in it, you know, what was the outcome for the, for the, the startups that you accompanied? Are there nice stories there? Give us more about it. I'll go into, that's it. That's a good question. I, these, these have been really good experiences working with startup bootcamp and Qatar sports tech. It's the same thread. The, the same thread has gone through all of this in my experience is that every startup that I've mentored or I've just given advice to or anything like that is that all startups need mentors and advisors who are not your friends and they need people to ask hard questions. So, so you need Every startup needs that independent person to oversee them, support them, but ask hard questions because startup building is very chaotic. Many jobs, tasks to handle, finances probably are a bit thin at the moment as you're trying to raise. So it feels like you're all over the shop. So to have someone or a few people or a team to give you counsel, structure your work, your thoughts, And to work through any problems has been key. This is what, and these are the kinds of reasons why you mentor startups, you work with people just to talk to them, give any advice, help them. It could be 
help with an introduction if you can. And this has been the same thread that's gone through anything I've done with Startup Bootcamp or Qatar Sports Tech over the last few years. Yeah, and that's a good point, actually, because very often uh, organizations look and mentors to commercial introductions only, but there's so much more that has to be done before the commercial introduction, which is kind of the end result of a whole process of how yeah. you work on your marketing, communication, PR, product, strategy, etc. That then leads to having a good messaging to actually go to market and benefit from those actual introductions. Absolutely. It's good messaging, being clear. Then you go, it's like, what's your purpose? Okay, is that something that you, is that, does that guide your product? All these kinds of things. So if you, if you, if you give that kind of independent mentorship, remember mentorship is not being nice to them. It is being just clear. Be clear. Yeah. And do you, do you have some good stories that are starting to pop up uh, of organizations you've been working with in some, in some kind of way in the, in the recent years? Ooh, that's a really good question. I'm, I mean, I've worked with some of the startups that I've, I've mentored. I've, I've seen them grow, grow and actually take on funding and then being able to go from into the seed and into the seed phase. Um, I'm trying to think of a, I'm trying to think of a really good example now, actually. Um, ooh, that's a really good one. Uh, I remember one of the uh, startup that I, I started by just a little bit of mentoring and advice and then even doing an interview with was um, Campaignware, who then I took on as a client. And this is a company that's gone from bootstrapping to just taking on dozens and dozens of uh, different kinds of clients in the enterprise and the customer space. So I think it all just started by being started by being just supportive and then you start to realize that they, you know, they might need some independent advice and there's some problems to solve. And then that actually then moved into a bit more of a, a client relationship where I start to become a supporter of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so jumping uh, more into the, the whole bullpen media, you're by yourself at bullpen media for the moment. Yes, I am. Or, yeah. Um, and so it's, it's kind of that you have that entrepreneurship mentality of having your own company and working for yourself and, and, and staying independent. How do you pass on that message uh, to your to, to the companies you work with, and what are you trying to achieve as a further goal down the line for bullpen media? It's, uh, it's another really good question. There, I I really go out and seek advice and mentorship myself. I have I will have conversations with people. I anything I don't know, or any person I want to just get some glean anything from. I will contact them. So I'm always, so even though I'm independent myself, I never feel like I shouldn't or shouldn't or couldn't reach out to people to get advice. I do that. It's, yeah. it's even though you might be a one person operation, two person operation, you can still go out and find your own, find your own um, advocates and counsel or um, mentorship. They're out there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, what kind of um, startup stage you're at. I pass that same advice on, but I do practice that myself. I still go out and I do have mentors and advisors. Yep. Yep. That, that's definitely right. And that's definitely something I can uh, relate to in terms yep. of finding right people to help you along the way. As long as you come with a nice, transparent, pro you know, um, as, that you have a nice, transparent approach. People like working with people that have ambition and ideas. And it's just like a good way of doing it. And I think that one of the things we do that you do also on your side, obviously, is give back in terms of advisory and just share that knowledge and those good hints that can help different organizations along the way. I agree, though. See, I agree with that because it's, you know, there's no point 
holding on to any holding on to advice or you're not your own island you pass that advice on receive it you'll learn from you can it's this it's this continual network and cycle of helping people receive help you and you know what the advice and help you give is not proprietary stuff but you were just helping someone look at something in a different light or a different way or being independent it's it's be open give advice but be open for it as well yeah, yeah. There's there's one thing I always think too is when people are too protective, uh, I never understand because there's basically room for a, a, a lot of us on a lot of different sectors. So there, there's definitely plenty of room. Um, but getting to to so the one thing that's really interesting for our audience is understand a little bit better the Australian landscape, right? So if okay. if we look at the sports Australian landscape, what are the most innovative organizations? Who who is driving change in the region? Uh, of Australia. Ooh, that's a very good question. Some of the some of the most fascinating companies. Sport for many 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 years, Australian sport uh, is very um, synonymous with sports science and a lot of sports medicine. We gen a lot of Australian Australians do export a lot of that expertise uh, in the. Sports science, sports physiotherapy, all those kinds of fields, sports medicine. Uh, so that therefore, the the most common c- common company that people tend to tend to there from there is they go catapult. It's probably the one of the more famous Australian sporting companies based on the pedigree of research, sports science, and um, athlete player tracking. That's one. Of, so that's one of the bigger ones. Mm, now let's let's have a look at some. Let's have a think about some other ones. Um, you got Vault see, and then on that on that tip, you've got Vault Performance. Um, they do a lot of um, uh, muscle stress testing, and they've taken on a lot of clients in through Europe, UK, North America. Again, on this sports science tip. Yeah, and and the other way around for um, the CEO of a startup listening to us, who should he address if he wanted to penetrate the Australian market? Like, you know, like in, in Europe, a, a couple of examples to help shape my question. Okay. Uh, working for American organizations on our side, um, one major difference between the European market and the American one is that European market is fragmented and that in the U.S. it's mostly the big leagues who have the power. Uh, in, in Europe, it's actually the broadcasters who acquire the rights and who create so much dependency that have a lot of the influence in what's going on in Europe, right? In terms of sports. Um, so th- that's one major difference. Um, what does the Australian market look like in terms of influence and, and, and who to talk to as a startup? Interesting question because for a long time, the Australian sporting market and landscape pretty much reflected a very UK type of structure uh, it still holds very much very true, but the, then the way it runs now, there's a lot of independence. So there's a bit of all, there's a bit more of a, an Americanization. It's almost a hybrid in some ways. You'd almost go, it's almost a hybrid. But if you're going to, you can go, so you can go club to club to club if you wanted to pick up, if you wanted to test out particular products, or if you t- if you're talking something like a, a cricket or something like that, the governing body is the governing body, which is Cricket Australia mm-hmm. or something like that, or even a state-based one, they generally become 
the go-to as well. So it's usually, it's a cross between governing body, league, club. Uh, there's no, there is actually, there's no set way because it's those are the three ways. So it's usually club-based, governing body, and then it's oh, governing body, and then it's yeah, say organizational league-based, so league or head office-based. It's yeah. it's I've seen good use cases out of all, uh, of companies doing all three. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. And because the one thing I can al- always relate to uh, as you're penetrating Europe, right? If you want to look at a league, Bundesliga would typically be a very good organization to target because they're innovative. They're structured in a way that can receive innovation, grow uh, the innovation. Um, so, so that was a bit of sense of my question. But the answer seems to be cricket. So Australia are quite a dynamic. It's, cricket Australia is very... Um, Cricket Australia, cricket is very open and dynamic for a lot of a lot of um, technological infrastructure change experimentation. See, and then see something like a cricket. Like if it's kind, of, we'll see if it's like a Bundesliga example where start at the top down. That's what how the governing body works. Whereas you look at various other football leagues in Australia, is that generally it'll be go for club by club by club. Can you actually can you find a use case per club per, per club per club? It doesn't generally happen at the league level down. So there's a so there's a bit of flexibility and it's a bit of flexibility there. Yeah, that's very European like, right? Uh, yeah, the, the the NBA taking it all for all the clubs. It's obviously all the clubs are independent and make their own decisions, and there's not that much of a common league effort for all the clubs uh, in the kind of model that the NBA has a team business operations team, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, great. And what about what about Australian football, right? Because that's always something from a European perspective or American perspective that's very unique. Yeah. Uh, but I know that it's a, definitely a very popular sport. What's the, what's the dynamic like around a, a sport like that in Australia? Are they Do they have the room to be innovative or because it's uh, kind of a one-country sport? Um There's not that much change coming from that type of league. It's just culturally, um, you, you know, culturally very, very big in Australia. It's interesting use case. It's a good question. It's interesting because it by being a closed league and native to Australia, is that it, it allows you to have a, a lot of experimentation. But comes with a lot of a lot of experimentation means a lot of uh, a lot of change and a lot of if something doesn't work. You can you can stop it, go to something else. I know you look at something like the Australian Football League; they've experimented with esports and gaming, and they've dropped that. They they will, they will experiment, and then they if if it if it works, we keep it. If not, we move on. It's a lot of it, it leaves you open to experimentation, um, but it does allow the clubs within the Australian Football League room to innovate into themselves. So mm-hmm. whether that's going to be in the analytics space or sports science space, or it could be in data or data capture or any or gaming, it but very much in the fitness and sports science space, it does leave the clubs room to experiment into themselves. So it's again, it's very closed but very hybrid as well. Yeah, interesting, and just also to help to help uh, from a European perspective shape what's the size of the market. In Australia, how big would a 
cricket team or an Australian football team or even a, a football team for that matter be? Like, what would you compare it to? Is it like a, the, the top teams are like tier one clubs in Europe or are we looking more like, you know, tier two clubs in Europe, you know, and a first division football? Like what, what, what kind of size and what kind of budget do those type of organizations have? They're not huge budgets. Like yeah. I could be pretty frank with that. They're not, they're not huge budgets. Uh, profits are only certain clubs. In, this is something in Australian sport in general is that not a lot of clubs are profitable. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, that's actually, that is, that is something that rings true for m many sports clubs, sporting organizations, yeah. especially in Europe. Profit, yeah, exactly. yep. Budgets aren't, these aren't huge multi, multi-million dollar budgets. They're not. So you, you, I mean, you can't compare. You can't compare a an Australian football league club to a to an English Premier League club or a Bundesliga club in terms of budget. But the yeah. budgets are the budgets. But are do you compare it to, to the budget of a Belgian club, probably, or do you compare it to yeah, you know, second division? Yeah, we could look at yeah, something like the Pro League, maybe the Eredivisie, or something of that ilk. Yeah. Yep. Like because brought because what underpins especially in in rugby league and in Australian in Australian football is that they quite they do have massive broadcast deals so there is money flowing from the governing body or the league head office to the clubs budgets aren't huge but there is big broadcast money so they do have a bit of there is a bit of space to to spend yeah so very much a, a European kind of dynamic the. The broadcasters are putting most of the money in the sport. Uh, the oh, clubs yeah. are rarely beneficial, only the ones that are very well organized, but there's still quite a bit of room for professionalization. Um, and it also brings us to the topic of that, you know, we can't avoid given what you, what you just stated is, is the Australian territory looking at more closely, more and more attentively, right? We see a lot of leagues now developing in Europe that have more of a hybrid approach between closed and open, right, in some kind of way. Is it something that's feasible, you think, in Australia? Expansion does occur in the professional clubs. It's, if I look at, if I look at some of the major sports in Australia, so you look at, you look at the NRL, the Rugby League, the Rugby League League, Uh, Australian football league, they haven't expanded for about a decade. The A League expansion does occur, but it's very, it's very expensive. It's quite a loss maker. Expansion is a big loss maker. It's, it's and you have private funding coming to Australia of big organized, you know, big VCs wow. or private equities that firms that actually come and start spending money like we have in Europe. Well, you've, there is actually a recent a recent occurrence in Australia where Silver Lake put down put in 140 million Australian dollars. I think it's 140 million Australian dollars. I should be checking that into the A League, which is the, the the which is the men's and women's national football leagues. Mm -hmm. So Silver Lake, I think their percentage. I'm pretty sure they took 33%. I think. 33 for 140 million. Okay. Yeah. Just, I'm just for our audience, just to compare it, I think that um, in France, they're looking for one to 1.5 billion for, you know, something closer to 15% of the league. Yeah. Um, so, just in terms of scale, that's a, an important comparison point. It's, 
it's probably it's such a good use case, and such it's, it's actually a really good question to bring up. Where it's it's and even in New Zealand now, where the the New Zealand's and the NZ are New Zealand Rugby Union. They I don't know if they have done it, but they were going to take on investment from Silver Lake as well. They sure did. Yep. Yes, it's right. See. See, that's something that actually we can talk rugby between yourself and myself and you, know, you being in France that, you know, there is interest in a bit of private equity. There is private equity interest, but there's usually for a long time, there's always been a lot of reticence because, well, it's key. There is, you've got tradition and then you've got, well, you need to unlock some finances. And yep. usually quite often tradition does win out over this part of the world. but. Yep. Now we've come up with two use cases where private equity has come in and taken pretty decent ownership stakes in in um, two years sporting properties here. Yep, yep. I think that one thing that is interesting is um, beyond the fact that it's private money, et cetera, it's just a kind of mindset that private that private money might bring to those governing bodies, at least in Europe, in terms of you know like innovating, moving forward, literally looking for new revenue streams versus just keeping the you know, keeping the league running in its usual way, not driving change in any kind of way. I think that private mindset might be very beneficial in terms of, uh, in terms of, you know, making those leagues bigger, bigger, making those leagues smarter and working with clubs and, and, and a lot more of similar examples. It's a lot of cash burn because you need a lot of money needs to go into the grassroots all the way up to the elite. So there's always a lot of cash burn, but there's, Ultimately, ultimately, sport is still struggling to come up with revenue streams. See, this is why private equity has been, it will be helpful. Maybe it helps unlock other revenue streams. Sport still struggles to come up with revenue streams outside of the usual big five or six, which is hospitality, ticketing, yeah, sponsorship broadcast, um, maybe licensing. Uh, there's, only, there's only usually a handful. Now we're starting to see some shift, shifts and changes maybe some private equity money will help to spark that kind of thinking. But yeah. it's, it does, sport, especially in Australia, does struggle to come up with revenue streams outside of the, the traditional five, big five or six. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. And the, the, the other thing is private equity is very interested by the top line. And I think that oh, that's yeah. something that's also really interesting in terms of generating profit beyond just uh, relying on the money from broadcasters, which we know is now at a point where it's, getting starting to be kind of capped by the way clint right now is the australian open period uh definitely one of the organizations in australia that have been pushing the 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 limits of what can be done in terms of innovation and and just hosting a big event that has international reach uh what are some of the the cool stuff that they're doing they really lean into so much innovation and data and technology and content and storytelling they do it all I mean, the most recent example this this time is their NFT drop for which blends physical and digital experiences. So they're doing that massive, um, that huge NFT drop. They lean into gaming and gaming tournaments. They they I think this would be their third or fourth year where they do that big Fortnite tournament. They have their own um, they have their own data center, so they are able to spin out. Um, Spin out data, um, spin out content from all the data and analytics that they they do that as a joint venture with the university. So they really go out and seek as many 
seek as many partnerships in the tech space, in the startup space. I think they were doing a, uh, doing some work with Swing Vision, which is an AI training, mobile training uh, app. So they, if you had to really push me for the organization or the governing body who's uh, driving a lot of innovation in sport in, in Australia, APAC, or Australia, New Zealand, APAC, you'd be looking at Tennis Australia by a long way. So many things they will try, they will try it and they will stick to it as well. Super interesting. Getting back to your own experience with the startups that you've worked with, what have you liked in in um, in the entrepreneur's mindset? Right. What 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 to you makes a great entrepreneur versus somebody that can just run a little company uh, or that has that that will see their startup fail? Ooh, I love this question. I love this question. It's it's going to be I'll, it's going to be certain points that I'll cover off is. It's the ability to be, I find the ability to find adaptability in their, in their, in their technology. It doesn't have to be in sport, but it's having the successful ones are able to adapt to either market conditions, changes, or realizing that they can't be locked into one, one market. They've got to find the ability to know how to shift and change or to find ways of adapting themselves to other markets is one of the big ones. I just find adaptability is one. And just in, and also the usual being able to solve challenges and envision new ways of enhancing sports experience or the gaming experience or anything like that. But quite often that comes back to the adaptability of tech. I just, and yeah. the successful ones are the ones that really know how to target the largest addressable markets and be really adaptable as well. I just, the ones, it's not solving just a small problem for a small audience. It's knowing that can they actually, can they really see the largest addressable markets of their, of the technology or the product or service or whatever they're developing? Can they really yeah. see the largest addressable market for it? And do you have an example of that, whether it be a, big successful entrepreneur that made it and, and, and showcasing those specific qualities that you mentioned, whether it be a very big organization or a smaller organization that you believe is just going to make it, but it's just an earlier round of their development? See, that's a really good question. And there's uh, an Australian-based company called InspireTech who in the last week have announced they've raised uh, $2.5 million. I think it's Australian dollars, $2.5 million Australian dollar seed round. It's a pre-seed or seed round. I think it's a seed round. And they look at mental health and well-being for athletes, whether it's at the professional level or at the amateur or at the amateur level or the semi-professional level. And see yep. see, now when we look at something like that, they see 2.5 million is not uh, it's in Australia it's it's a fairly sizable seed round. But yeah, and, and just one thing that's also important to put out there, I think that when you're looking at a, a fundraise in the U.S. Versus, and trying to compare it to Europe and Australia, I don't think it's the right way to do it because it's yeah. very different markets. U.S. go much faster uh, than Europe, for example. I'm not sure about Australia, but my assumption is that is it's relatively the same. Um, and raising a lot of money, you know, leads to, you know, having to do it to, to make a lot of money very fast and additional pressure and 
then it can be acquired at a certain price versus another, right? So there's a whole lot of elements that mm. raising a lot doesn't mean that you're onto something good necessarily. It's, it's sometimes it's, yeah, you don't want to overcapitalize too. Um, yeah. Who knows if 2022, uh, uh, if we see these kinds of issues with overcapitalization, who could say going forward? But um, yeah. So we'll go into Spytech just very briefly, is that because it's it's mental health and well-being for athletes and for athletes at the professional level down to the amateur level. See, we talk about athletes, so that's only a, a particular, that's a big addressable market into itself. You know, people that play sports, whether it's emerging youngsters between the ages of, it could be youngsters from, say, 13 to 17, those that are striving to become professionals, or you could have college-based students, that's a really big addressable market, and then you've got professional athletes. See, that, that into itself is a big addressable market and user base. And then you look at the adaptability of it. This is me just thinking now. The, I'm, the adaptability of that kind of technology, because it's mobile-based, mobile app-based, and it means that you can actually go, go, into other, you can go into other verticals. You know, health, fitness, wellness, and sport all work to get work in, work in, work in, in concert, in sync, potentially. Uh, so something like uh, something like you know, health, mental health, and well-being means you can really hit some big addressable markets than the ones that you're actually playing in right now. So I think that's an interesting that's an interesting very recent um, thought in case study. Yeah, that that capability for a technology to just go beyond one uh, vertical of sport and take the technology beyond is definitely something that's very powerful and that every startup should have in their back of their mind because top line you can from the sports industry is just like cap and it's a very difficult industry and there might be easier money to go get in other industries. 100% agree. Uh, I could even, I, I could just suggest that uh, you could, um, you could do your early pilots in sport, but if you can find use cases outside of it or, um, or at different enterprise levels, or do you find, again, adaptability, adaptability, adaptability is big. That's, it always is. Yeah. Um, and ha- being now about 15 years in your in your professional journey between 10 and 15, yeah. if we take 2009 as a starting point, yeah. what would you tell your 18-year-old self to um, go faster, um, do better? What would it be? <laughs> I was going to say invest in Netflix, but... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and and keep going along and more software companies know that's um hey we'd all do that but um do you know what go faster i run counter to that actually patience you can patience and resilience are two things as you grow older one of the beauties of growing older is not the sore joints or anything or the aches and pains one of the beauties is is the Learning and experiences of learning and experiences matter so much. So what you do at 20 to 25 to 30, you know, you're reading more, you're listening more, you're watching more, you're making mistakes, you're, you're changing jobs in industries and so forth. Is that the patience to be able to, to grow into whether you're growing into an entrepreneur, you know, not, I'd say, I'd say patience rather than going faster patience. I've, I've founded businesses now in my thirties as opposed to my twenties. Yep. So I'd say patience is, you know, it's and being able to have a longer term plan and having a clear long term plan. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's definitely a point I can relate to, and that's actually yeah. a very good, uh, a very good answer from my perspective because I think that as you're young, you want to make it. 
yeah. as you grow, you love the process of feeling closer of achieving your goals, right? And I think that that's an important one for the for the entrepreneurs that are that are listening. It's there's no wrong way. We get there's many brilliant entrepreneurs from the ages in their teens all the way into their twenties, and they have they've you know it's that fire and passion and it's you know, the ability to go in and break stuff and keep moving and moving and being disruptive. Brilliant, yes, it's brilliant. But the it's I would just temper that by saying that be patient. You keep learning, keep listening, and yep. you bring your youthful exuberance in. Uh, you keep that youthful exuberance, especially as you get older. But you know, a little bit of patience. Not everything is going to happen now, now, now. It's yep. some things take time to build. It takes time to build product. It takes time to test product, um, and all those kinds of things. So yeah, patience and and therefore, and if you have failures, keep the resilience up. Yeah, and what what are you building for yourself ten years from now? Uh, I've got a couple of things. I'd like to in ten years from now, I'd like to see I'm developing my own thesis and uh, my own investment thesis. So, if you if a ten year plan would be, I'd love to have my own small little fund where I'm uh, able to put money into various startups, into various companies. Um, so at the moment, build a thesis, test it, talk about it, write about it, produce contents on it, and then we're talking ten years. Yeah, a, a, a small a small fund where I'm backing companies with my own conviction. Yeah, put put, put the money also where the, your mouth is in terms of convictions, etc. That's a, that relates very well to having invested in Netflix, right? I think that that's one thing that's really interesting is it's know, put effort and put whatever you have. Uh, And what you believe and, and, and believe in your intuitive insights in terms of business and what, you know, like, and give it a shot, try it. Yes, um, it absolutely is. And, you know, that, so that I've set that as a, so I've set that as a, as a 10 year goal. It'd be to, to, to talk about like what we're talking about now, you know, to talk about sports, to talk about startups, stuff like that. Keep shaping a thesis to go, can I, can I then back, back dozens of companies and that I think, may be adaptable, may be able to respond to change, may be able to be creative and all those kinds of things going forward. Yep, yep. Um, very interesting. I think it, it is very helpful in terms of ways, and I, I think it will address a lot of questions from our audience in terms of whether it's from Australian market perspective, whether it's from an entrepreneurship perspective. Just to conclude our exchange, um, Is there any book, series, movie, anything that has inspired you extensively in the recent months that you would like to share to our audience? Uh, I can tell you about the last um, the last book that I've read, actually. So how about we go we go very recent? I can tell you the last book I read was um, "Selling the Pig: The Final Days of EMI EMI Records," which is uh, uh, I'm hugely fascinated by the music industry, hugely. I listen to too many things too often. Hugely fascinated by the music industry in general, the operations, mechanics of it. And this is a book of a uh, pretty funny book in some ways of anecdotes and stories about how EMI, one of the major record labels within 10 years, major, major label, and then within 10 years had evaporated through, um, uh, we can just say, let's just say some poor decision-making. Yep. That's probably yeah. and I I do I find inspiration from it. I just find 
I find it fas- I find it fascinating where businesses in very imperious positions can make poor decisions that is extremely extremely costly uh, extremely costly in just a matter of five to ten years you know we can look at you know like we can look at another company like Kodak or something like that you know companies that have the advantage and a lot of, pardon there's a lot of those that aren't working that that like when you look at a blockbuster and all of those guys and you know like there's organizations that made very very poor decisions that actually disappeared Toys R Us like there's there's a lot it's so I find so why I get inspiration from that you yeah blockbuster and Toys R Us so you get in you look at the, the inspiration of why you know it, it's usually a failure to see what other people are seeing, failure to look at the audience, failure to adapt to technology, failure to be, to be agile, failure to, it's the, it's static decision-making rather than uh, risky decision-making. See, I, so that's why I get inspiration from it in, we say inspiration. So, so that's the most recent book that I've read that I've been, that makes me think about these kinds of things. Yep. Yep. I guess uh, from where you stand, I would have been surprised if you didn't have a lean forward type of mentality versus a static one. Um, <laughs> terrific. Clint, look, it, it was really fun exchanging with you today. I'm really glad for the time we had to spend together. I hope it was very useful. I, I'm sure it was very useful for me in terms of, uh, you know, the Australian landscape and uh, understanding a few elements out there. Um, anything that we can wish for you in 2022? Anything that we can wish for? Um... Uh, <laughs> wish for us. Uh, it'd be nice to, you know, a bit more uh, fingers crossed, and hopefully we're all vaccinated enough. A bit of freedom of travel. We can all meet each other in person and have a, and all have a, you know, meet and talk to each other in person. Not necessarily avatar based. Not necessarily uh, metaverse based. <laughs> um, I just want, you know, it'd be maybe you know people that people say, oh, I'd love to visit Australia. It's like, oh, you know what, my wish is that. Love for people to come out here and enjoy Australia, and vice versa. It'd be nice to come out and visit France and stuff like that as well. Um, not, 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 not metaverse style just yet. Just maybe in, let us do it in person for a little bit more. <laughs> Terrific! Thanks a lot, Clint. Thank you, everyone. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't hesitate to like, share, talk to your network uh, if you enjoyed it, um, and we look forward to having you for the next one. Bye, Clint. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io, to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le corner.